0: Eko
1: o Aotearoa.
2: When you imagine the first Europeans Māori ever saw, you're probably imagining people like James Cook. Explorers on official missions dressed in fancy naval uniforms.
1: But actually, for most Māori, first contact didn't look anything like that. The first Pākehā most Māori saw would have had sunburned and wind-scorched faces.
2: Their clothes would have been crusted with salt and sometimes stained with blood. If you saw them today, you might assume they were victims of a shipwreck.
1: That might have been what some Māori actually thought too.
2: But these guys weren't castaways, and they weren't explorers or colonists either.
1: They also weren't all Europeans. They came from all kinds of places, Asia, the Pacific Islands, America and Australia.
2: And the reason they came was to hunt the seals and whales which swarmed around our coasts.
1: At first there were only a handful, but by the early 1800s, these hunters were arriving in their hundreds.
2: They brought new technology, new diseases and new knowledge of the outside world.
1: It was a revolutionary moment in New Zealand history.
2: Sealers were some of the first Europeans to live in New Zealand year round.
1: And whalers were a driving force behind the musket wars, the signing of the Treaty of Waitangi and the colonisation of Aotearoa.
2: Ko wani mrei tēnei.
1: Ko Māni Dama pāho.
2: Kete whakarongo mai koe ki te Aotearoa History Show.
0: Ka pahawai tūnu ake, ake, Smoke bombs have been thrown onto Eden Park. Smoke bombs, flares, and an attempt to come onto the field. Last night, a most grievous railway accident took place at Tangiwai. We are marching to Parliament! and no more land to be sold.
1: Seals and whales played vital roles in New Zealand's history long before Pākehā turned up. It's thought one of the ways some of our tzipuna discovered these islands was by following migrating whales.
2: In oral histories, whales are often described as guardians of ocean voyages and as companions of rangatira and tōhunga.
1: For example, the motiatia, he oriori ori Motutere Moana, describes a waka sheltering in the wake of a whale during a storm. And in some versions of the story of Paikia, an ancestor of Ngātepurau, Paikia is said to have called on a whale to rescue him after his brother tried to drown him.
2: Some landmarks in Aotearoa were said to be formed by whales. For example, the Māori name for Fovo Strait is Te Ara Akewa, or the Path of Kiwa.
1: Ngai oral traditions say a navigator named Kiwa became tired of crossing a stretch of land which once connected Murihiku, Southland, to Rakiura, Stewart Island. Kiwa asked an obedient whale named Kiwa to bite through the land and make a path for his waka. Kiwa agreed and chewed through the land. The crumbs and loose teeth which fell from his mouth became the islands of the strait.
2: There's no evidence Māori hunted whales before Europeans arrived, but they did harvest meat, teeth and bones from stranded animals, which were considered gifts from Tangaroa, god of the sea.
1: And Hine a deity of the sea. Whale bone was used to make weapons and jewellery. Rei pendants made from the teeth of sperm whales were especially precious, and still are. Many hapu still harvest bones from
2: stranded whales. Seals were also very important to early Māori. People all over the world had hunted seals for food and clothing for thousands of years, and the ancestors of Māori were no different. Archaeological evidence suggests elephant seals and sea lions were once common around Te Waipaunamu and Te Ika a Maui, but were hunted in such numbers by early Māori that they became extinct on the two main islands.
1: And it wasn't just those larger species. Before humans arrived in these islands about 750 years ago, it's estimated there were up to 3 million fur seals living around Aotearoa. About 500 years later, when Europeans showed up, there were roughly 1.8 million. That's about a 40% reduction.
2: The remaining population of fur seals was hunted almost to extinction by Pākehā sealers. Within 50 years of European contact, New Zealand's fur seal population collapsed to just 10,000 animals. That's about 0.3% of the pre-human population.
1: The first non-Māori to hunt seals around New Zealand were probably James Cook and his crew. Cook wrote about hunting fur seals while anchored in Tamatia, or Dusky Sound, in the southwest of the South Island during his second voyage to Aotearoa in 1773. He wrote...
0: We saw many seals, 14 of which we killed and brought away with us, and might have got many more, would the surf have permitted us to land with safety. The skins we made use of for our rigging
2: The fat gave oil for our lamps, and the flesh we ate. When Cook's journals were published back in the UK, his descriptions of fur seal colonies got a lot of attention.
1: Fur seals, as you might have guessed, are furry. They have a dense undercoat of thick, soft fur, protected by long, waterproof guard hairs, which act kind of like a natural wetsuit. Moriori and some southern Māori hapu wore seal skin clothing to stay warm and dry in bad weather.
2: And so did people in many other parts of the world, but a revolution in seal skin technology came in the mid 18th century when the Chinese invented a method of separating the coarse guard hairs from the soft, fluffy underfur.
1: This soft, fluffy fur was extremely valuable, and James Cook reported seal skins could be sold in Chinese ports for astonishing profits. And this triggered a kind of gold rush for seal skins in the Pacific.
2: That rush only got more intense when the British invented their own methods of processing seal skins in 1796 to make shoes and hats. By the 1830s, it's estimated 7 million seal skins had been sent to England and China from the Southern Hemisphere, and at least 20% of those skins came from New Zealand.
1: The first commercial sealing voyage to Aotearoa happened in 1792, 1792. A ship called the Britannia delivered a load of convicts to New South Wales, then crossed the Tasman to drop a gang of 11 sealers in Tamatia or Dusky Sound.
2: While they got stuck into the job of hunting seals, they also spent a fair bit of time building a new ship to sail back to Australia, just in case the Britannia never returned to pick them up.
1: That might seem like an overreaction. I mean, the Britannia did return ten months later, but the fact is, sealers often did end up stranded when their ship sank or abandoned them. Yeah,
2: in 1813, a ship called the Perseverance discovered five sealers living on Solander Island in the middle of Fogo Strait. They'd apparently been stranded there for four and a half years. A Sydney newspaper reported...
1: They were clothed in seal skins, of which their bedding also was composed. And their food had been entirely made up from the flesh of the seal, a few fish occasionally caught, and a few seabirds that now and then frequent the island. The Britannia expedition was a bit of a false start for sealing in Aotearoa. They only caught 4,500 seals, which was seen as a poor
2: return on investment. But the trade soon took off. Between 1804 and 1809, about 1.5 million seal skins were taken from our shores, mostly by ships operating out of Sydney. But as historian Rhys Richards explains, we don't have many written records of how and where this happened. He writes, Captains tried hard to ensure that on their return to New South Wales, each newly discovered sealing ground or rookery would be a most carefully guarded secret, not to be divulged to other sealing gangs. There are few eyewitness accounts by sealers, for few sealers were educated and no romance was attached at the time to their hard and often brutal trade.
1: And it really was hard and brutal work. Sealers would navigate their boats up to the jagged rocks and heaving surf, then clamber all over them chasing seals.
2: They worked in all weather and often at night. Many men drowned or broke bones.
1: When they weren't working they lived in caves, under upturned boats or in rudimentary huts, sometimes for months at a time.
2: Pretty hard going. Plus, killing thousands of seals was a pretty gruesome job and sometimes the seals fought back. Male fur seals grow to 180 kilograms and they bite.
1: Sealers also hunted elephant seals and those can weigh more than two tons.
2: French scientist Jules de Blosseville visited the Bay of Islands in 1824 and spoke to sealers there. He wrote... How powerful must be the love of money when it can induce men to support the fatigues and privations which fall to the lot of the seal fishers.
1: Sealers mostly operated in remote areas, but many came into contact with Māori. There are several records of sealers trading for food and dressed flax with hapū in southern parts of Te Waiponamu and Akiura, Stewart Island.
2: These men often married Māori women and joined their wife's hapū becoming what we call Pākehā Māori.
1: During the early 19th century, dozens of sailors, whalers, traders and escaped convicts joined Māori communities. Some Pākehā Māori were considered little more than slaves or curiosities, possessions in either case. But others, like Barnett Burns, were given chiefly status and war mataora, full facial moko.
2: Pākehā Māori were extremely useful to their hapū. They could act as translators and opened up opportunities for trade with other non-Māori arrivals. There were only ever a handful of sealers in Aotearoa at any one time in the early 1800s, but they still had a massive impact. Earlier visits from European explorers had been extremely brief, usually just a few days at most. Sealers, on the other hand, stuck around for months. Those who deserted sealing gangs to become Pākehā Māori might live among Māori for decades. This gave many Southern hapū a chance to gain in-depth knowledge of European culture and technology.
1: But relations weren't always harmonious. Between 1810 and 1821, there were a series of violent conflicts between sealers and Southern Ngai Tahu, that some refer to as the Sealers War. Possibly 74 people were killed, and a Ngai Tahu settlement near modern-day Dunedin was burned to the ground.
2: Some sources suggest this violence was triggered by the mistreatment of Māori women, or by theft from one side or the other, but the details are uncertain.
1: There were other downsides to contact with sealers. The destruction of seal colonies deprived Māori and Moriori of a traditional source of food and clothing. But the New Zealand sealing boom went bust within five years, after 1809, the market for seal skins collapsed, although it was revived a couple of decades later.
2: Meanwhile, in more northerly parts of Aotearoa, Māori were coming into contact with Pākehā hunting a completely different kind of sea mammal. The Parawa, or sperm whale.
1: Unfortunately for these whales, they had a lot of valuable stuff inside them.
2: Their heads were filled with an oily substance called spermaceti.
1: It's thought this organ helps the whales eco-locate, but early whalers thought spermaceti looked a bit like semen.
2: Which is how these animals got the name sperm whale.
1: But I'm just going to stick with Parawa.
2: (laughs) It might have looked gross, but spermaceti was useful.
1: Yeah, it could be processed into a lubricant for high-precision instruments, or made into fancy candles which burned without smoke.
2: The intestines of sperm whales also often contained a material called ambergris.
1: Scientists think ambergris forms in the whale's stomachs as a side effect of swallowing the beaks of giant squid, but nobody's quite sure.
2: Ambergris was, and still is, insanely valuable. It's used in the manufacture of perfumes and also as an aphrodisiac
1: because there's nothing sexier than congealed giant squid gunk.
2: But spermaceti and ambergris were just the icing on the cake. The bit which gave the sperm whales the bulk of their value was blubber, the thick layer of fat which keeps whales and other marine mammals warm in cold oceans.
1: Blubber was boiled up in big cauldrons called tripods, and then refined down into a substance called whale oil. Whale oil was a good lubricant and could be burned in lamps. That was very helpful in the early 19th century because synthetic lubricants and electric lights had not been invented yet. In those days, whale oil lit millions of homes, businesses and public buildings.
2: The factories of Britain and the rest of Europe would have ground to a halt without whale oil. It literally greased the gears of the Industrial Revolution. The
1: first kind of whalers in the Pacific were called ship or pelagic whalers, operating on large sailing vessels far out to sea.
2: Men would climb way up to the top of the mast, scanning for the telltale spouts of whales breathing. When they spotted one, they'd shout down to the rest of the crew, and the chase was on.
1: When they got close, small boats would be launched. A person would lean over the side and spear the whale with a harpoon attached to the boat with
2: a long rope. Then the whale would take off, dragging the whaleboat behind it in what sailors called the Nantucket sleigh ride. Might sound fun, but this was the most deadly part of the job. Lots of boats were destroyed and whalers killed.
1: But, all going well, the exhausted animal would be dragged alongside the ship. If it wasn't already dead, it would be killed with a long lance.
2: Next was the dirty and dangerous job of heating the blubber to release the oil. The tripods belched thick, greasy smoke, and burning oil sometimes set whole ships ablaze.
1: but the profits meant it was worth the risk, and by the late 1700s, more and more ship whalers were voyaging into the Pacific.
2: The first recorded to reach Aotearoa was the William and Anne, captained by the famous British-American whaler Eber Bunker. He'd transported convicts to New South Wales and then anchored in Doubtless Bay in 1791.
1: Visits became increasingly common in the early 1800s, as wealthy ship-owning merchants set up shop in New South Wales and Tasmania.
2: Increasing numbers of whalers made contact with Māori communities, trading for supplies and recruiting locals as sailors.
1: Fun fact, the famous whaling novel Moby Dick has a major character called Queequeg. That guy is thought to be based on Tepehi Kupe, a ngasi rangatira, who jumped aboard a British ship in 1824 and sailed with it back to England.
2: As with sealing gangs, whaling ship crews were incredibly diverse. Along with Europeans and Māori, there were Pacific Islanders, African and Native Americans, Aboriginal Australians, Chinese people. More than a few women went to sea as well.
1: Whaling was a truly global industry, and it transformed the Pacific. New Zealand, along with other places like Australia, Samoa, Fiji, Tahiti and Hawaii, were key hubs for the trade. Settlements like Hobart, Kororarika, Apia, and Honolulu exploded into bustling ports where people from all over the world gathered.
2: Imperial powers like Britain, Germany, France and the United States were all keen to grab a slice of the growing Pacific whale trade and conflicts between these powers had a big impact on the industry.
1: For example, part of the reason British whaling dramatically increased in the Pacific at the start of the 19th century is because of the Napoleonic War. French warships were attacking British whalers in the Atlantic, so they came to the Pacific instead.
2: Then the 1810s saw a downturn in British whaling when the Brits and Americans started fighting the War of 1812.
1: From the 1830s, the Pacific whaling trade became dominated by ships sailing out of Massachusetts in the United States.
2: By that point, there were a lot of whalers sailing around the coasts of Aotearoa. Historian Alexander McClintock estimated that by 1839, about 200 whaling ships were passing through our waters every year.
1: Partly, that was because of a sailor called Jackie Gard, who reported seeing a bunch of whales near to shore in Te Moana the Cook Strait, in either 1827 or 1829.
2: As historian Alfred Reid put it, It was a lucky day for Gard. But a very unlucky day for the whales.
1: The whales Jackie Guard saw were tohora.
2: Europeans knew them as southern right whales, and the reason they called them right whales, because they thought they were the right whale to hunt.
1: Parawa, or sperm whales, might have had cool stuff like ambergris and spermaceti inside them, but they were hard to catch. They were fast swimmers and mostly lived far out to sea.
2: Right whales, on the other hand, were pretty slow and gathered in sheltered bays to raise their calves. They also tended to float after they were killed while most other whales sank.
1: That made right whales easy targets, not just for ship whalers but for so-called shore whalers too.
2: These shore whalers, as you might have guessed, operated from the shore using large boats they rowed out. A German scientist, Ernst Diefenbach, watched shore whalers at work in the Bay of Islands in 1839 and gave this fairly graphic description. Gasping in the agonies of death, the tortured animal throws up jets of blood, dyeing the sea all around, beating about with its tail, but it at length dies, exhausted from the many wounds inflicted.
1: Then the dead whale had to be hauled back to a whaling station to do the processing that other whalers did on board ships. These stations weren't exactly pleasant places. Historian Brad Patterson describes your average whaling station as...
0: A huge open-air slaughterhouse. The beach was covered with the remains of whales. Skulls, vertebrae, large shoulder blades and fins. The sands were stained with blood and fat. Chunks of rotting flesh lay about... The small complex was overhung with clouds of oily black smoke. The
2: stench was intense. But while it was messy, shore whaling was extremely profitable and extremely popular. In
1: 1841, Henry Peter wrote that there was...
2: ...scarcely a harbour in Cook Strait and on the eastern coast of the southern island in which there are not whaling establishments. Some historians today think that was a bit of an exaggeration. But in any case, there were a lot of whaling stations in New Zealand, and they were only possible thanks to close collaboration with local Māori, who provided food, firewood and labour.
1: Almost all shore whaling stations employed Māori crew on their boats. And as historian Ryan Tucker-Jones writes, those crews included both men and women.
2: By the 1840s at least, Māori women were even leaping off whaleboats into the ocean to spare small porpoises by hand.
1: Unlike sealers or ship whalers, shore whalers didn't just periodically trade with Māori. They set up permanent or at least long-term settlements, often within or next-door to tukainga Māori, which required a whole lot of mutual trust and cooperation.
2: Contact with shore whalers had an especially big impact in Te Waipaunamu. In 1844, it was estimated two-thirds of Ngai Tahu women between Horomaka, that's Banks Peninsula, and Aparima, Riverton, were married to whalers. Similar levels of interracial marriage probably weren't seen in the North Island until a hundred years later.
1: The names of Pākehā whalers still live on in many Ngai Tahu whānau, Anglum, Gilroy, Spencer, Harberfield, and Howell, to name just a few.
2: Many Māori communities look back fondly to this pre-colonial whaling era – compared with the battle of sovereignty and land that defined the colonial frontier later on.
1: Some Māori communities continued shore whaling into the 20th century, long after most whaling stations had closed.
2: But contact with whalers could be harmful for Māori. For one thing, just like sealers, they often introduced new diseases.
1: In 1835, Ngaitahu suffered a deadly outbreak of measles, followed by a devastating influenza epidemic, both of which killed large numbers of people, particularly around Fovo Strait and at Otako.
2: Interactions could also be violent. In 1809, the trading ship Boyd anchored in Whangaroa Harbour to pick up some timber spars from Ngati Uru.
1: But then Ngā found out that the Boyd's captain had flogged and starved a young rangatira who'd sailed with the ship from Sydney. They attacked and killed most of the Boyd's crew, about 70 people.
2: Then the ship's gunpowder store was accidentally ignited. The explosion killed several Māori and destroyed the ship.
1: A group of whalers mistakenly thought the Ngāpuhi chief Te Pahi was to blame for this incident. So, in March 1810, the crews of five whaling ships attacked Te Pahi's pa on an island in Wairua Bay.
2: Up to 60 people were killed, and the pa was destroyed.
1: That event triggered a wider war among Māori in the area. Te Pahi was killed in the fighting, and visits from European ships reduced dramatically for a few years because of fears of conflict.
2: Whaling was also closely linked to the musket wars. Whalers often traded muskets and ammunition for food and other supplies.
1: One of the main reasons Ngāti seized control of Kapiti Island in 1824 is because Te Kupe and Te knew it was an excellent location for whaling ships to visit. Controlling the island meant better access to muskets and other valuable trade goods.
2: But by the late 1830s, some Māori were getting increasingly worried about the negative impacts of whalers. Kororāreka, later renamed Russell, was a major hub for the trade, and it became infamous for drunkenness, fights and prostitution.
1: A missionary called William Colenso said Kororāreka was...
0: Notorious for containing a greater number of rogues than any other spot of equal size in the universe.
2: Concern about these rowdy sailors was a major factor in the signing of the Treaty of Waitangi. Māori and missionaries both hoped a new British governor would help control Pākehā in places like Kororāreka.
1: After the treaty was signed in 1840, far fewer whaling ships visited our shores. That's mostly because of new taxes and port duties introduced by Governor William Hobson. But also, by the 1850s, the entire Pacific whaling industry was collapsing. Hunting around Aotearoa was so intense that Tohora and Parawa were nearing extinction.
2: One side effect of this was that a lot of ship captains in the Pacific suddenly had to find new work.
1: Many became traders. Historian Scott Hamilton suggests former American whalers played an important role selling guns and ammunition to Māori during the New Zealand wars.
2: Others entered in a notorious trade known as blackbirding, where thousands of indentured or enslaved Pacific Islanders and Aboriginal Australians were transported to work in places like Queensland, Vanuatu and Peru. Some victims of blackbirding were brought to New Zealand and some local ship captains participated in the trade although it's not clear how many.
1: But while many whalers had to switch professions in the 1850s and 60s, commercial whaling didn't actually end for another 100 years.
2: New technologies like steam engines and harpoon guns made it profitable to hunt species like humpback and blue whales, which were often too fast or aggressive for whalers on sailing ships.
1: At Whangamumu, south of the Bay of Islands, a pair of brothers used steel nets and a steam-powered launch to hunt-hunt whales. By 1915, they were catching 70 animals a year.
2: Another whaling station at Tory Channel was even more successful, taking up to 200 whales a year in the early 1960s.
1: But eventually, there just weren't enough whales left to support the industry especially given that demand for whale oil fell dramatically in the 20th century thanks to the invention of synthetic lubricants and electric lights. In
2: 1964, commercial whaling in the waters of New Zealand finally ended, although it wouldn't be officially outlawed until the 1970s.
1: By that point, there was a big global anti-whaling protest movement.
2: But you might be surprised to know that the first efforts at conserving whales didn't have anything to do with public protest. They actually came from the industry itself.
1: New Zealand was a founding member of the International Whaling Commission in 1946. The commission enforced moratoriums and catch limits. These were aimed at allowing populations to recover so that whaling could continue, but on a sustainable basis.
2: But in the 1970s, public attitudes changed in many parts of the Western world. Thanks to technology like underwater cameras and microphones, people could now see and hear marine mammals in their natural environment.
1: Whales and dolphins were increasingly understood as intelligent, emotionally complex animals. They became symbols of the rising environmental
2: movement. Activist organisations like Greenpeace and Sea Shepherd took direct action to protest whaling, including in Aotearoa. As a country, New Zealand became a leader of the anti-whaling movement.
1: All around the world, protections on whales and seals steadily increased. In 1978, New Zealand passed the Marine Mammals Protection Act. It became illegal to kill dolphins, seals or whales in our waters.
2: But it was almost too late, especially for the tohorā, the southern right whale. It's estimated that local population crashed from 10,000 before 1800 to just 250 in the 1990s.
1: Today, some species, like Maui's dolphins, are still threatened with extinction. But most whale and seal populations are recovering. The Department of Conservation estimates Tohura numbers are increasing by 7% a year.
2: And with the recovery of these species, some people, including here in New Zealand, have argued in favour of a return to commercial whaling and sealing, but this time sustainably.
1: Looking back over the last 230 years, it's amazing to think how much of our national story is caught up in the history
2: of these animals. As historian Ryan Tucker-Jones put it, whales are the silent players at the centre of many historical dramas. They swim through histories of capitalism, science, diplomacy, Euro-American imperialism, the Pacific, indigenous revival and the modern environmentalist movement.
0: Thanks for listening to the Aotearoa History Show. Make sure to follow or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or whatever podcasting app you use. You can also find a video version of this show on YouTube. If you want more New Zealand history podcasts from RNZ, why not check out the New Zealand War Series, or Black Sheep, or Eyewitness. You can find them all at our website, rnz.co.nz podcasts. The Altero History Show was made with support from the Ministry of Education. It's hosted by William Ray and Marnie Dunlop. It was written and produced by William Ray, and the executive producer is Tim Watkin. Our director is Duncan Smith, and our sound engineers are Phil Benj, William Saunders, and Mark Chesterman. We had historical and editorial support from Mike Stevens, David Green, Bronwyn Houliston, and Matai Smith. And a huge thanks to the dozens of reporters, presenters, producers, complaints managers, and others at RENZ who lent their voice acting talents to the show. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mascal and Andrew Scott.